So this morning is April 14th. It's 2013. Our message this morning is about breaking barriers. Now when I say that, there are all kind of barriers that may come to mind. Uh, our news focuses on barriers constantly. I grew up in the house with a college football coach. My, uh, my daddy was focused on many things, and some of them that stuck in his heart and his mind came to me this morning. I began thinking about them. Dad and I used to sit around and talk about who had the biggest bench press in world history. Is there another man in here that ever at some point sought to break a record or, or a personal goal in a bench press? Anybody who was ever in high school, this is what little boys sit around and talk about. I was a little surprised to find out in 1898, before the turn of that century, a man set a world bench press record. Would you like to guess what it was? I was shocked. Made me feel pretty good at first. It was 361 pounds. Now I want to tell you that once a record is set and then it is broken, once a barrier is broken, it gets broken wide open. Less than 100 years later, Chris Confessor, in 1995, bench pressed 741 pounds. What a difference 100 years makes, huh? Now, a, a huge difference. The first man that I was telling you about, George Hackenschmidt, he bench pressed 361 pounds, but that's about what he weighed. The second man who bench pressed 741 pounds only weighed 236. Is that impressive? But these records get broken wide open. So in 2008, Ryan Kennelly bench pressed 1,075 pounds. Yeah, I, my son told me that, and I, I thought that he surely had misread it. But I verified it this morning. It's true. The nature of a barrier is that once it comes down, there's not just a trickle. There's a flood that goes through it. Anybody remember the, the, the four-minute mile? It was thought to be an unbroken record. I mean, it was not breakable. Nobody could do it. In 1954, Roger Bannister ran a mile, the first sub-four-minute mile in history. It was three minutes, 59 seconds, and four-tenths of a second. Do you know that today, in every state, there are high school students that run sub-four-minute miles? And that the world record is a full 17 seconds beneath what it was when Roger Bannister said it? When records are broken, when barriers are broken, they are broken wide open. What only one man dares to do, suddenly others find tremendous courage to do. How about Chuck Yeager? By the time we get to Chuck Yeager in 1947, we have one man who's going to break a sound barrier. Now this is done routinely even by commercial pilots every day. We even had passenger jets by the 60s that were breaking the sound barrier with passengers on them. This is the nature of a barrier. Once it is shown to be breakable, others find the courage to do it. Now you might be not all that surprised to find out many people when they broke these records didn't know they were breaking them. The, the first world bench press record that was ever actually broken is a man I didn't mention here. I mean, one was set in 1898, the first time it was broken, they lied to the man who was lifting so that he did not have that pressure of breaking the record. What does that tell us? Some barriers are real and some are self-imposed. This morning I want to talk to you about the ways in which Jesus breaks down barriers. The way in which the one man made a hole and all the rest of us shoulder to shoulder are marching through it. You can turn to Micah 2.13. Say there when you're there, if you prefer to cheat and stare at the screen. We put these here for those that occasionally forget their Bibles. We did not put these here so that you would have an excuse not to bring the Bible. We've been asked if we were seeker sensitive before. I'm the furthest thing from seeker sensitive. I'm savior sensitive. My personal feeling is that you should have a book in your lap. If you don't have that book, we'll help you buy one. And that that Bible that is sitting in your lap is one of the most precious things you could ever own. I personally have a relationship with that book, not just the word, with the book itself. I know where the scriptures are on the page. I make notes beside them. I dream, and when I dream about the word, I dream about it in my Bible. The reason that this is important is because it becomes very personal to you. You begin to care. You begin to treat it with some sense of reverence rather than just throwing it in the trunk of our car. Men died to give us this book. 
It is, it is itself a witness to murder. It might as well be written in blood because the men who died to give it to us gave their lives, their blood to give it to us. Are you in Micah 2.13? Yeah. One who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. I believe that Luke picks up on this scriptural idea by the time you get to Luke 16, 16. He says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom has been advancing and everyone is forcing their way into it. The imagery is that there was an unbreakable barrier. There was something that held the people captive and the Lord showed up at the head of the people. The Lord himself, the tip of the spear, broke open away and led the people out. And since then, we're following in the footsteps of those that have gone before us in the kingdom of God. This is very much a sheep pen kind of imagery. But without teaching on that, I'd like to talk to you about some barriers that are often in our lives. Is that fair enough? Yeah. <coughs> our heart in covering these kind of topics. You know, here recently we preached about deep convictions and masculine holiness. Then we preached on deep waters. And then here, just the other night, we were preaching on the good deposit. All of these messages have to do with receiving something from heaven. Growing that which you were given. And then transmitting it. Because we have a responsibility to get the gospel around the world. It is ours and no one else's. It is the sons of the kingdom who are responsible for the kingdom. We can't sit on our salvation and wait for someone else to go. We can't sit on our salvation and wait for someone else to do it. God gave you a revelation of who He is. And with that revelation came the responsibility to grow it and to transmit it. Somebody say amen. amen. Four barriers that show up in the Bible. And there's many. I just picked four for this morning. There are curtains in the Bible. Not like curtains in your house. Curtains is in a wall of separation. A barrier. There is a census in the Bible when we count people. There is a crossing in the Bible, and there is a cross in the Bible. We're going to talk about these four barriers this morning, and my hope is that in learning how Jesus breached each one, and how we follow Him through that breach in the wall, how we begin a movement that takes over the world called the Kingdom of God. One of the books in our library is written by Ethel Stauerbaum. He was a German author in the earliest, early 20th century. One of the favorite quotes, if you ever get my copy that's in there, you'll see it highlighted. He said of Jesus, He is the arch median point where the world can be shifted from its axis. He and none other. If you're going to accomplish anything of worth in your life, it can only come one way. Men build businesses every day. People set out on uh, endeavors every day. They do all kinds of things to try to accomplish something. But the only thing worth accomplishing will come through Jesus by which we can shift even the world itself on its axis. No point in history clearly illustrates this more than the last hours on the cross. But before we glorify His name ending at the cross today, I thought we'd talk about the problem that He first solved for us. Go to Genesis 3. Say there when you were there. Let's grab Genesis 3.21. A familiar scripture, but worth another look. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. By the time we get to 3.22, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side, somebody say east side, east side. of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. There was a barrier as soon as man sinned, Isaiah 59 teaches us that that sin separated man from God. But Genesis 3 literally tells us how it separated us from God. We had access to 
uh, the tree of life that you could eat from and live forever. And God denied us access. He put a barrier between us and Him. And when He set us outside of the garden, what side did He set us on? East. It's a funny thing about East in the Bible. Now, I'm sorry for those of you from the East Coast. I ask for your forgiveness in advance. But He set Him not on the west side, north side, or south side. He set Him on the east side. By the time that you get to Genesis 13, 11, and you're looking at Lot, Lot was looking eastward in the plain of Shinar, and Lot settled in the east. By the time you get to Genesis 41, 6, it is an eastern, eastern scorching wind that devours the seven years and seven uh, years of plenty. By the time you get to Exodus 10, it's an east wind that drives in the locust. In fact, a careful examination of east in the Bible shows that about eight out of ten times, if it is coming from the east, it's the wrong direction. I would like to submit to you that I'm not is considering the points on the compass. It's the fact that man began to move away from God. And he's been moving that direction ever since. And nothing good has come from it. As soon as we decided that we would like for ourselves to choose the best direction for our lives... That direction has always been wrong no matter what the direction was. Can somebody say amen to that? Amen. Have you noticed? I've got toddlers in my house. And right now one that is about one years old. And boy, she's precious. You saw her in the video, huh? This is Izzy. We love Izzy. Izzy's mama is in here today. Izzy's great grandma is in here today. So I have to tread lightly when speaking about Izzy. But Izzy will smile at me while I feed her, and then take her bowl of food and throw it at me. <laughs> Izzy will make eyes at me and then try to bite me and hit me if I don't do what she wants. This is normal behavior. It's normal sinful behavior. When left to ourselves, the direction that we choose is wrong. So most of Christianity is about giving up the right to choose your own direction. The foolishness and folly that is bound up in our hearts. And lifting Jesus up as our only real source and our only real direction. Amen. This idea culminated in a structure that Moses built. He built a structure that was based, Hebrew says, on a pattern that he saw in the heavens. By the time you get to the book of Exodus, God says, build exactly according to the pattern that I show you. And when we look at that temple, it's, or rather tabernacle, one of its chief features was a curtain. Look at Exodus 26. We'll be in the 31st verse. Are you all bored already this morning? You awake? You with me this morning? If I tell you something that's challenging, will you be mad? You know, we could pick so many churches. You probably drove past many this morning where you are guaranteed never to hear anything offensive. I'm not so interested in filling every seat in here as I'm interested in filling every heart with the truth of the gospel. And then the seats will take care of themselves. I have never been concerned about drawing the great crowds because I noticed that Jesus did not. In fact, when he drew great crowds, he seemed to whittle them down with harsh statements. Now, it's not my intent to be harsh today. But I'm going to speak to you just like I speak to my own family because in my opinion, that's what a church is. Is the family of God. But the time we get to Exodus 26, starting in verse 31, make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and finely twisted linen, with cherubim worked into it by skilled craftsmen. Hang it with gold hooks on four posts of acacia wood, overlaid with gold standing on four silver bases. Hang the curtain from the clasp and place the ark of the testimony behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. Put the atonement cover on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. Place the table outside the curtain on the north side of the tabernacle and put the lampstand opposite on the south side. For the entrance to the tent, make a curtain. And then we go on and describe another curtain. What we see as we look at the tabernacle and its furnishings is we see that you first walk up to the tabernacle and you enter through a gate of praise. It was literally called the courts of thanksgiving. So if you were in the desert, and friends, which one of us were not 
in the desert. If you were in the desert and you looked up and you saw the people of God, first of all, they should stand out a peculiar people. Why on earth, for what reason of holiness in the whole world would God tell a people, don't cut the hair on the sides of your head? I mean, could there be a more ridiculous hairstyle to have to wear? Except that God himself wanted his people to stand out. He wanted them to be peculiar. He wanted you to be able to spot them from a distance. So imagine that you're walking in the desert and you see this furnishings. You see a, a tabernacle standing there and the men who are standing at it don't eat like you. They don't speak like you and they don't look like you. And the only way to enter from where you're at to where they're at is to begin in praise. How fitting that he called his people the Jews, the praise of God. And he referred to them as Israel, the prince with God. Friends, if you can learn to become the praise of God, then the Bible promises you will become a prince with God. Amen. The Bible hope that we hold out is not that you are on the east side of the garden headed the wrong way, but that it is possible to repent, to turn around, and to head in a new direction. It will require you to do things differently, to be peculiar, to stand out, and to start your life in a place of praise. After you moved through the gate of praise, you came to something. You came to a brazen altar. At this brazen altar, a terrible thing would happen. An innocent would die. And the innocent would die as a reminder that you are guilty. And without the shedding of blood, there could be no remission of sins, God said. And that blood was thrown into your face. There's a reason for this. You had to own the guilt. You had to wear it. You had to start by loving the Lord, praising His name, and coming to a place in your life where you realized the blood of an innocent was now on you. God didn't leave us in guilt and shame, though. We moved on from a brazen altar and the temple furnishings and tabernacle furnishings to a silver basin, a polished basin. And you would begin to wash. You would see that the blood itself didn't make you dirty and guilty as much as it cleansed you and freed you from shame and guilt. Can somebody say amen? amen. After you washed in this, the priest would go on for you as your representative. He would enter into the tabernacle where there would be a menorah, the light of God's spirit. The sevenfold spirit of God that Isaiah spoke about that we call the Ruach HaKodesh or the Holy Spirit. If you're from the American South like me, you can say, Holy Ghost. As you stood in this room where the presence of the Holy Spirit was, there would also be bread that is the bread of His Word. There would also, in this same room, be an altar of incense, the prayers of the saints. Now we would see from the furnishing something that God was teaching mankind. If you will begin to praise me when you don't yet understand me, I will free you from guilt and shame. I will wash you. I will lead you by my spirit into a place where you can eat the bread of heaven and your prayers will be heard. But he left even in that day a barrier, a curtain. He left a curtain between the place where you could stand and the place that he would stand. It was a barrier that no man could break. Once a year, a high priest would go behind this curtain one time and speak the name, the unspeakable name of God, YH. W.H. And the people were so uncertain that this would be okay that they tied goat thong around the man's ankle to drag him out in case God struck him dead. Now the things on the earth were a shadow. They were a copy of the things in heaven. The truly unbreakable barrier was in the heavens. This is where if some man didn't go and break down the barrier then no man would ever go. Man was separated from God. This shielding curtain, some people say that it was 10 meters by 20 meters. Do that math. Multiply it out. No one thinks that it was any less than 8 centimeters thick. It probably weighed 4 to 6 tons and took more than 300 priests to carry it. Come on, somebody say that's thick. Turn with me to Matthew 27. Say there when you're there. 
In the 27th chapter of Matthew, let us slide our finger down to the 51st verse. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What direction did it tear? From the top down, friends. This is not on earth just looking top down. It's from the heavens, top down. Jesus did not go into that tabernacle and present his blood. He went into a heavenly tabernacle to present his blood. And he began to tear the barrier there. And the result was that it tore even on the earth. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified. And what did they exclaim? Surely he was the son of God. In tearing this curtain, we broke several barriers. You see dead men coming to life again. Isn't this what the gospel does? It takes dead men and makes them live. It does not take sinners and make them better men. It takes corpses and makes them walk again. The gospel will speak into your dead life and it will raise you to a new place. It will cause dead men to live. It will take you who feel outside the presence of God and put you standing in the place where God alone dwells. Amen. If this were anything but true, it would be so audaciously arrogant that I would not dare to say it. That a man would be in the presence of God, but once one man did it. Once Jesus, the fullness of the deity, the Word of God made flesh. Once He went into the presence of God, Ephesians 2 says something extraordinarily powerful. It says, you were seated with Him at the right hand of God. Just like the four-minute mile was broken and now high school students can do it. This curtain was torn from the top to the bottom and now children can go into the presence Amen. of God. No longer do you have to stand on the outside. No longer do you have to be distant unless you choose to be. God in His infinite wisdom gives you the right to choose whether you want to stand with Him or away from Him. Come on, church, I pray you stand with Him. Amen. If we're going to stand with Him, then we must be like Him. If we're going to walk with Him, then we must walk in the light as He is in the light. And if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we will have fellowship with one another. Oh, friends, this means you can look around you and see how you're doing. God in His infinite wisdom has given us progress markers. How are we doing with the people around us? Are you being loving to them? Are you being kind to them? Are you sharing the living eternal gospel with them? Because these are the things that Jesus does. And if we are with Him, then we will do what He does. Or the first, the, the book of 1 John is simply a lie. But I don't believe that it is. If you're taking notes and you need a scripture for that, that was 1 John 5, 7, paraphrased in the King Aaron. Sorry about that, but if King Jimmy can do it, then who can't, right? <laughs> universally accepted translation and universally misunderstood. Turn with me to Exodus 30. I love the King James. I'm teasing you. I thought I'd get a bigger reaction out of you, but some of you were scared to let your true feelings show. In Exodus 30, we find another kind of barrier. Somebody say, one barrier down. Come on, one barrier down, three more to go. I love the living God. I love Him. I love it. This is not a show that we put on. It's not an act. Those of you that stop by my house get the same thing in my kitchen that you get right here. When I encountered the supernatural, I've had a hard time settling down. When I fell in love with the King of Kings, they told me it was wear, that it would wear off, but they lied. It's grown. It's grown stronger and stronger. Are you in Exodus 30? Yes. In Exodus 30, verse 11. Then the Lord said to Moshe, I know that's not familiar to us. None of the Bible names are familiar to us. We don't have a Carlos in here this morning, do we? Anybody named Carlos? Do we have a, a, a Juan in here this morning? Got a Juan. How would you feel if we simply renamed you John? 
because we would prefer your name to be American. It's not quite fair, is it? It happens all of the time. When John Dang entered into the United States, he was given an American name because this is what Americans do. We've done it even with the Bible. We've taken names that were unfamiliar to the people that their mothers never called them, and we've given them those names because we find it easier to say. We find it more palatable. While I don't object to this practice, you must understand that it leads to something that is sad. It leads to us substituting an American understanding for a Hebrew prescription. Are you following me? It's important that we, the Western people, in this and Eastern book, that we look at that book through the eyes of the original audience. It will open up a whole new world to you. So when we hear the word census, what we hear is something that happens every 10 years that you hate to answer. You might even lie on it because you're scared that if you tell the truth, they're going to raise your tax assessed value of your house or audit you or whatever it is, right? You might hang up on them over and over because you think they're telemarketers. And so our census is based on extrapolated data, right? If we can get 50,000 people to answer, then we can guess at what the other 250 million people would have said. And this is the way that our politicians do their demographics and decide how much to raise your taxes. They get to extrapolate it out. Have you noticed that when a tax shows up, it never goes away? Anybody waiting for the toll road, the Beltway 8, to stop having a toll on it? We were told seven years and it would go away. As far as I can tell, it's going up, but it has not left. <laughs> right? Census in Israel was not like this. A census in Israel meant that you gathered all of the people to one side of a barrier. The first census that was ever taken was when they left Egypt. You gathered everybody to one side of a barrier, and then you had to cross over. Here's the text that it is based on. Uh, Exodus 30, verse 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, When you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one of you must pay the Lord a ransom for his life. At the time he is counted, then no plague will come on them when you number them. Each one who crosses over to those already counted is to give a half shekel according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 gerahs. The half shekel is an offering to Yahweh. All who cross over, those 20 years old or more, are to give an offering to the Lord. The rich are not to give more than a half shekel, and the poor are not to give less when you make the offering to the Lord to atone for your lives. Apparently, the Lord and Steve Forbes were both favors of a flat tax. It was not a graduated scale. God was trying to teach something. He was trying to show us something. One price, whether rich or poor, one price would be paid. It's a ransom to the Lord for your life. And, two, and people could be gathered into two categories. Those who have had a ransom paid and those who was provided for but had not yet crossed over. It's an interesting thing because in Israel's history, there were quite a few uh, of the census. There's six in Exodus 38, 26. We won't turn there. That's at Israel's inception. There's a census. In Numbers 1, 1 through 2, to ascertain the number of fighting men prior to the conquest of Canaan. There is a census. In Numbers 20, in 26, 38 years later, after they counted the men, decided to go in and fight, changed their mind and left. They had another census 38 years later. Have you ever heard the idea that if you don't do it, God will raise up someone to do it? Have you ever heard the idea that God's will will always be done no matter what? Well, these are neat little theological concepts. And I'm not saying that in general they're not true. I'm simply saying that if you look at Numbers 1 and you take the number of fighting men... And then you look at Numbers 26 and you take the number of fighting men. There's 1,870 less fighting men. What does this tell you? Yes, God did do it. But 1,870 people fewer went into the land than were supposed to go into the land. You know why? Disobedience. I'd like to tell you, sin has its cost. You know what else it means? Not one person who went through the Red Sea, other than Caleb, Joshua and Moses. Not none who went through the Red Sea. 
got to actually go into the land. Isn't that sad? It's not just that the next generation had to do it with fewer people because of the unbelief of the previous generation. It's that none of the previous generation made it in. They say that we're living in a declining nation. They say that Christianity is shrinking. I don't know whether they're right or not. But as for me and my household, I know we will not leave fewer Christians in our lives than the day we got born again. Amen. I'm going to give my king an increase of 30, 60, and 100 fold. How dare I get right up to the boundary and back up? Amen. Friends, our disobedience has a cost to it. 1,870 fewer men to go to battle. He said, well, it's no problem. The Lord was with them. I bet it was a huge problem when they had to set out for battle. Anybody here want to go, go buy a car with 1,870 fewer dollars than you had the first time the Lord told you to do it? See, these were real human beings, just like us. And sin had its effect on them. In 1 Chronicles 21, in the time of David, you know there's a census that God got mad at him for. In 1 Kings 5 and 2 Chronicles 2, there was a census in the time of Solomon. In Ezra 2, they returned from Babylon, and there's another census. Friends, do you know when the last census will be? The one that the king of Israel orders? It's the separation of the sheep and goats. There will be some in one camp, not under a ransom. There will be others in the next camp called the living, the church of the living God, and they will be under the ransom. Let me ask you, who paid this price for us? I mean, does anybody in here have a half shekel of silver? Anyone? Turn with me to John 5. Listen to how Jesus said that he paid this price for us. It only takes one to go through a barrier and then the floodgates open. Y'all in John 5? In John 5, let us hit the 21st verse. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Look at these words. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and he will not be condemned. What does it say? He has crossed over from death to life. The imagery that is given to the people, what they obviously would have understood it to mean, is everyone previously standing outside of Israel. If you were outside of Israel during the Passover, meaning the people of Israel, if you were not covered under the blood of the Lamb, what were you? You were under death. Everybody standing outside of Israel was dead already. But all they had to do to be living was be covered under the blood of the Lamb. See, he is speaking the words that are the same thing as that animal sprinkling blood in your face. He is speaking the word that both condemns you as a sinner and also washes you into a saint. He is the living, breathing, walking Word of God. He is the tabernacle of God Himself. Let me get my King James quote in there. The, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Are you hearing me? These barriers were not barriers at all to the Son of God. They were barriers to everyone except Him. And once He goes through that barrier, it's like He's saying, come on brothers, I have broken open the way. The Lord is at your hand. I will pay your ransom. Will you not come? What does that make us if we sit on our hands? See, saints, too often we're interested in being entertained. He saved you to put you to work. He heals a man at the pool of, of Siloam. And he says, stand up and walk. Now pick up your mat and carry it. He has work for you to do. 
When you come to the conclusion you could never have paid for your own census. When you come to the conclusion you never could have torn that curtain. But you trust that he did it for you. It makes you responsible to work on his behalf. He never called us to simply sit and soak. He called us to go out as saints that work. Now I know we've twisted this into working for salvation. What a lie that is. I work because I'm saved. Do you want to see people say? Come on, somebody say amen. I want to see people say. Who goes to make disciples? Who is it that advances the kingdom? Do we sit back and ask the Lord to do it when He has poured out His power into us so that we can do it? Do you think it's the domain of a preacher or a prophet? Do you think it's the work of apostles and teachers? It is the work of every Christian. Where do you think apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, evangelists come from? If not from disciples. We go and make disciples. He calls some of them to be apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, and evangelists. It is we who make disciples and it is Him who apportions their function. And there's a reason. Ephesians 4 teaches that He called some to be those things in order that they might prepare God's body for works of service. Do you know what you're called to do? Are you engaged in doing it? Oh, friends, we cannot sleep while the harvest is ripe. We cannot rest while there's hours of daylight. Night comes when no man can work. How much of Jesus' time did He take just to sit back and kick it? How much of His time did He just chillax? He was about his father's business. Are you about your father's business this morning? There is no better feeling in the world than to know that you're used of God. To be his ambassador as if his word were coursing through your veins, making its appeal to a dying word. You don't believe me? Try it. I encourage you to find the next lost person you see and give them a hug and tell them, hey, hey, that was from Jesus. <laughs> At the very least, it'll give you an interesting end to your day, won't it? The census was one kind of barrier. The curtain was a kind of barrier. But so is crossing the River Jordan, a kind of barrier. You know, we talk about having crossed over things. We talk about crossing from death to life. Did you know that a poll said 76% of Americans believe they're Christians. Now, I've heard numbers higher than that, but it's the second part that I thought was funny. 76% of Americans believe they're Christians. 50% admit having strong doubts about their neighbors. <laughs> what does that tell you? <clears throat> it means that we've learned to profess a thing that people are not living. We've learned the answers to the test without even knowing the real questions. Billy Graham said we've received enough of the weak and dead thing to inoculate us from the real thing. I would encourage you this morning to ask yourself, have I really stepped to the other side of that curtain? Have I really been numbered with those that are God's? Does my heart and spirit bear witness with God's spirit? Strip away your fuzzy little doctrines and your friends that have told you what you should believe about yourself. And ask that question honestly. Lord, if there were no one else but you and me, can I honestly say that your spirit is telling me I am saved? Because this is how the book of Romans teaches us to know that you are saved. The Jordan was quite a thing to cross. In Hebrew it's hey Yardin. Those who go to Israel almost invariably see it. It's nearly 200 miles long. It runs north to south. It goes from Hermon to the Salt Sea. In some places, it is 100 feet wide and swells at flood stage to a mile wide. It's the site of severe judgment at times, and it's the site of awesome salvation at times. The River Jordan is much like salvation. It begins and ends in Israel. The direction of Israel's crossing, you want to guess? It's from east to west. When Israel was coming into the promised land, they were moving from...
from the east side, the side that was man's natural drifting, the sinful side, and moving west. By the way, when Jesus returns, he returns in the east. See, he came to get sinners. He came to get those that were in the wrong direction and the wrong way. He came to help you cross over. He came to pay your price. He came to tear the curtain. He came after you who were lost and was willing to ignore those who already thought they were safe. Amen. The Jordan is a picture of Jesus. It's a picture of salvation. And it is Israel's largest landmark. Turn with me to Joshua 3. Let us talk about crossing the Jordan. Y'all have gotten quiet on me. Nobody has anything good to say about the Lord? Come on, somebody say something good about the Lord. What is wrong with Americans? You know, I'm going to be in Africa soon. And when you preach, they preach back, man. You know, it's like America descended from Germany. When you preach there, an excited German is not like that. It's funny that in the heart of the Reformation, the people who stood up to the rest of the world's religious tyranny and said we will be ruled by Scripture alone are now emotionless, in many cases godless, and certainly spiritless. If you let your intellect rule you, if your life is about logic rather than the leading of the Spirit, you're headed down a dry path, my friend. The people who gave us this book understood something about God. He's a mystery. And He often cannot be figured out in a mathematical formula. It would be best simply to be led by Him than try to predict His next move. Goodness gracious, you talk about a return to a childlike existence. They had to wake up each day and see where his cloud moved, and that told them what they were doing that day. Now, if you're like me, and the cloud moved, you'd be like, all right, let's go on, let's conquer some new ground, let's do something awesome for the Lord. But what do you do when he stops 200 yards on the other side, and you just had to move 4 million people? Would you second guess his decision? Lord, you know, is this ground really any better than that ground? Would you become frustrated because now you're beginning to understand what the Christian walk is about? His mastering, his ownership of your life. He broke open the barrier you could never break open. The least you could do is follow him. Oh my goodness. He tells his people to cross the Jordan. And when they go to cross the Jordan in Joshua 3, are you there? There's numbers around me in Joshua. Joshua's hiding in my Bible. It says in the first chapter and first verse, I'm sorry, third chapter and first verse, early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before, what's that say? Crossing over. What an interesting topic in the Bible. We cross over from death to life. We cross over from the east side of the Jordan to the west side. We cross over in a census from those not numbered with Israel and salvation to those who are numbered. In the curtain, we cross over from the barrier outside God to the, the presence inside the very heart of God. Where they camped before crossing over. What an interesting thing. If you knew you were going to cross a river today, if you knew that was the point, you could see the river. Why not just go after it? Why do you camp before crossing over? You know, this is what many people have done with salvation. They know it's the right thing to do. They don't deny that at all. They'll agree with you. They will clap their hands when you quote those scriptures. But the truth is, they're camped on the east side of the Jordan. They're sitting right next to salvation asleep in its light. No one would be saved unless they crossed over the river. You know what camping before the Jordan is important for? Counting the cost. See, sitting there staring at the river, you had a choice to make. Will I be obedient to God even if my senses tell me, don't do this? Will I be obedient to God even if I see the waters rising? You had a choice to make, and I imagine that battle was won or lost before you actually faced the river. Friends, you'll have a choice to make today. Some of you will go further with God. And you will make up your mind to go further at every opportunity. Others have already decided, I'm good right here, thanks. 
I pray that you're of the heart and mind that doesn't simply want to camp at the river you intend to cross it. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests who are Levites carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow. Come on, move out and follow. Who can describe their Christian walk in this way? I have moved out and I am following. Abraham could describe this 2,000 years before Jesus. I moved out of Ur of the Chaldees, which by the way is in the east. And I am following God's presence. Every real born again believer, everyone who is in covenant with God through the man Yeshua, everyone who has come under the saving power of the fullness of the deity in bodily form, has the same story. I was once camped at the river, but I have moved out and I am following God. Are you following Him or are you still camps. Then you will know which way to go since you have what's that say? Never been this way before. Oh my goodness. You thought it was Star Trek that went into unknown places. You, you read books to imagine lands that you've never been in. Every day in the kingdom. Every truly spirit led day is a way you have never been before. It is a reckless abandonment of all that you knew and an embracing of the power of God to lead you and guide you. In fact, following the leading of the Spirit may mean that without your eyes you see better than with them. Ask Samson. Sometimes our flesh is the biggest enemy and obstacle that we have. Why do we cater to it so? Friends, these folks moved out. They followed the Lord. And they went somewhere with Him that they had never been before. Is there nothing in your heart that yearns for a Holy Ghost adventure? See, I long for it. I dream of frontier missions. I dream of being in town center and sharing the gospel. I dream that you respond to an altar call and we see something new in your heart and life. I dream of the glories of God because I belong to Him and I love Him. Who wants to go somewhere with the Lord they've never been before? I want to tell you there is no glory in playing it safe. Neatly plowed roads, neatly fenced yard. I'm not going to pick on our denominations today, but let me ask you, has there ever been a more manicured lawn? You have a choice. Do you want to live within the sound of church bells, or do you want to set up a rescue shop at the very feet of hell? I want to go where the deep water, where the fish are biting, friends, not the darkness and shallow waters. I want to cast my net where Jesus said to go. Saints, if I could encourage you, there should be an element of risk in your faith or it's not faith at all. If there is no risk, how do you know that you are really trusted? Some will say, oh, pastor, that's irresponsible. You are right, it is irresponsible. Who on earth would go out with five loaves and two fishes and say, I'll feed them all? How irresponsible is that? It's a man led by the Holy Ghost. He counts differently than we do. He does. In fact, he got mad at David for taking the census because he didn't need David's number of soldiers. He just needed David's whole heart. Oh, let's cross the Jordan together. Amen. Every once in a while I get excited. I would apologize for it, but I'm not going to. <laughs> but keep a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. I haven't watched the TV in a little while, but on the radio I heard a man making fun of a race called the Amazing Race. Why do we need to watch Survivor? Is that on TV still? Yeah, that's amazing. Why do we need to watch reality shows? You ought to be living out biblical prophecy every day. Amen. You ought to be making it come true in the name of Jesus. What could be more exciting than being in the place where you can say, the scripture is being fulfilled here. 
Oh, I, I know you think it's somebody else's job, but you know if there's a wedding in Israel, the scripture's being fulfilled because Isaiah said it would happen again and it didn't for 1,800 years and then happened again. Did you know that when somebody planted flowers in the desert, scripture was being fulfilled because God said he would make them bloom again. The living God will use you to fulfill his word. If not you, who? Is he going to call the church of Rome? Is he, is he going to call the Mormon church? We're going to call the Jehovah's Witness? Who? If it is not spirit-filled, empowered Christians who are craving his will more than a doctrine, who are craving him more than some title, then who is it that he would use? Surely we're not going to sit in the house of God and say, please, Lord, use someone else. There's a revival yet to be had. There's a whole nation that will have a fountain open to them of cleansing. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation will call on His name. Have you gotten your share? Have you gone out and labored in the harvest? Have you reached your quota? Any plain reading of the gospel, say 30, 60, 90, 100 fold. Who in here has seen 30 born again? What a goal. He who wins souls is wise, friends. He who watches television, I don't know. Where are our priorities? I'm trying to reach you today because I love you. I speak to my sons the same way. I speak to my wife the same way. She in turn preaches at me the same way. I fall under sin and repentance. We're supposed to spur one another on. Come on, nobody in here ever seen a Western? What do spurs look like? But we hire pillow prophets to lie to us about our true condition because they make us feel good about ourselves. How could you even have a seeker-sensitive movement if there was a Holy Ghost conviction found in the church? How could you do that? Show me that in the Word. Okay, I'm going to drop that subject and we'll pick up on the Bible topic. Is that fair? All right, help me move on here. Verse 6. Oh, verse 5. If we consecrate ourselves today, what might God do tomorrow? Huh? What does it mean to consecrate? What have you separated yourself from? What have you taken a step out of the way and simply said, Lord, right here you have my full attention. I won't think of another thing. I won't do another thing. I just want you and you alone. If we took the time to do that, what God might do tomorrow? Oh my goodness. I bet that if you truly consecrate yourself to the Lord, we might see those John 15 greater things that Jesus spoke of. I was speaking with a brother here a few days ago. Said, Eric, you know, God instituted one day and seven to rest. America has taken two. Began to reflect on that, and that's true. We have day six and day seven to rest. On our calendar, it's day seven and day one in the Jewish calendar. And yet we don't really rest on any of those days, do we? When have we sat and just contemplated, Lord, what is the goal for my life? What is it that you want? For me. In the seventh verse, and the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all of Israel, so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters. What's it say? Go stand in it. We serve a God who does not split the sea and then say, take the first step. He tells you the Jordan is going to split, now you go stand in its water. Salvation is a walk of faith. Baptism in the Holy Ghost is a walk of faith. You cannot go into a turtle-like bombshell position and say, Lord, if you want me to have it, then I'll have it. He requires you to take a step. He has always required it. He's never stopped requiring it. It's what shows trust. You have to put some risk in the game. 
And if you're not willing to look a little silly for the Lord, then why would you ask Him to credit His atoning blood to you? He died naked before the whole world to see for you. And we worry about what it will cost us to follow Him. They go on in this story. And when they get up to the water's edge, what do you think they find? It's at flood stage. My heart tells me that in this room, many of your lives are at flood stage. You want to do something for Him, and all the power of hell seems to amass all in one place to stop. We have a God who has already broken this barrier. It is an illusion. There is nothing left for us to do except walk in His footsteps. Amen. Jesus crossed this Jordan. Jesus paid the price of this sentence. Sin census, and Jesus tore that curtain from top to bottom. He did these things at the cross. Anyone in here ever read Pilgrim's Progress? The way into the celestial city was down through a deep river that went in and over your head. It is the River Jordan, friends. We're going to face death. We're going to see it split, and we're going to walk through on dry ground. There'll be a day that for the entire world we hold out stones from the middle of that river and we say, this was the day we crossed. This is what Israel did. You know, in the fifth chapter, the first thing they did, they go to a place called Gilgal and they say, he has rolled away our reproach. And they set up a monument to when they used to be on the other side of the river that had now crossed over. What in your life is showing that there is no more reproach? You are now free. You are now free. You are now free. Amen. I would compel you in the name of Jesus Christ that you may have been just a poor old sinner, but if you have crossed over, He has made you a saint. I don't pray like that. I don't talk like that. I publicly repent and do it regularly. Many of you have heard me, but I am anything but an old sinner. I have become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He has credited me with His standing, and now my job is to walk in it, and so is yours. Let us talk about the cross for a few moments. Very often I preach an hour and a half, and sometimes I do it just to do it. Today... I want to get to the cross as quickly as I can get there. I want to share with you what our Lord has earned for us. I want to love Him and love you and enjoy fellowship together. Does that sound like a plan? I'm going to name a few scriptures. I'll read them to you. You write them down. It'll save time. I want to talk about what the cross brings you. We've crossed over. If we've seen the curtain torn, if we have passed from one side to the other in the census, then Luke 22, 44 says it this way. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. His sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. In Gethsemane, friends, Jesus took our cares, our worries, our anxieties upon himself so that you could have peace. <coughs> The suffering of His bride brings you peace. Do you feel a real lasting connectedness with God in your life? Do you know for certain, not that you're saved on the day of judgment, that's become so trite. I'm not interested in the day of judgment this moment. I want to know are you connected to Him now? And I have found out while I'm pastoring that many people say, I know I'm saved, but I'm far from God. Who lied to you? What makes you think that's possible? You show me that in the Word. Those who are saved are in His presence. Saints, are you connected to Him? Because He suffered greatly. The sweat of His brow in that garden was meant to bring you peace. In John 19, the first verse, it says it this way. 
Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Isaiah 52, 14 describes his appearance as disfigured beyond that of any man, marred beyond human likeness. Jesus faced that Roman lictor and was wounded to the point of disfiguring him so that we could be whole. He took a beating so that you could be whole. 1 Peter 2.24 says it this way, His wounds, by His wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. His back, beating on His back, heals you and brings you back to Him. Are you taking advantage of that, friends? Have you been healed in Him? Healed emotionally? Healed physically? Or do we carry those things around like He didn't break open the way? Like He didn't pay the price? Like He didn't do it? These were barriers until someone does it. But as soon as someone does it, then we see it's available even for us. All think on His hands for a second, friends. Close your eyes just a second. What do you see when you look at His hands? Colossians 2.13 says He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to a cross. When Jesus was nailed to a cross, it symbolized our debts being paid. It was a Hebrew custom. It's called kefel. You would put a list of a man's debts on his doorpost. This was an effective collection method. Can you imagine if Visa didn't have to call you on the phone and say you were late? They posted a billboard across your house. So that when your neighbors drove by, they could say, Oh, he didn't pay, Judah didn't pay MasterCard this month. <laughs> Creates a little social pressure, doesn't it? And when a debt was paid, you took the bottom of the debt and you folded it to the top and drove a nail through it. When they nailed Jesus to the cross, it was like nailing your debts. In John 20, 25, one of the disciples remarked, but he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. I'd like to tell you, he had those nail holes in his hands. His hands are to bring you forgiveness. How long will we go without that? Some of you in here feel so far from God that I can feel it. He didn't just take a beating, friends. He took a catastrophic beating. He took a spiritual separation from His Father so that you would never have to be separated from Him again. How about Jesus' feet? In Colossians 2.14, He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authority, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. You see this in Joshua 10.24. Joshua had every person in Israel come and put their feet on the necks of the enemy. And Jesus did the same thing. When his feet were pierced and he submitted to death and then stood up from it, it's like King Jesus stood with his foot on the neck of death. And he's reminding you, I have earned for you in my feet a very great victory. What victory is eluding you because we are not trusting in the barrier breaker? His head. Oh, I love my Lord's head. Matthew 27, 29. And then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. The thorn is first mentioned in Genesis 3.18. It's a part of a curse that came on Adam. Jesus was crowned with our curse of pain and suffering and poverty that entered the world through Adam's sin. He was crowned with thorns so that the curse could be removed, as Paul said in Philippians 4.19. God will supply all my needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Every time you think of our Lord's head pierced with a sinful crown, it was to bring you a blessing. 
He had sin laid upon His head so that you could have God's hand laid upon your head. Maybe the last thing about the cross, maybe the last visual imagery, it would be John 19, 34. One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The piercing of Jesus' heart represents the breaking of the human heart. The inner wound and the heartbreak of my experiences are released in Jesus at the cross. His side brings me inner healing. Now, I don't have to be a prophet to look at this many people sitting out here and know that the devil has tried to sow into you a lack of peace. He's tried to sow into you emotional heartache. He's tried to cripple your bodies. He's tried to keep you far from God. He's tried to keep you on the outside and outsider. Jesus gave of Himself to break that barrier for one reason. That He would be the firstborn among many brothers. That we would be the church of the firstborn. That the trickle that He began would become a raging torrent and flood. He is not willing that any of you not only would perish, but that you would suffer from any of these things that He paid for. Do we have a broken heart in the house of God today? Because there's healing for that. Do we have a distant feeling in the house of God today? You don't have to be. You do not have to leave this room the way that you walked into it. We're going to pray now. We're going to pray together. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. Some will camp on the wrong side of the Jordan. Others will be ready to move out and follow. The question is not what is everybody else doing. The question is what are you going to do? Some of your hearts are pricked and pierced. And you don't know how to respond. Let me tell you, it starts with a step. A step of faith. Leaving where you're at in a symbolic gesture and going somewhere to meet with God. We know that you meet with Him right where you are. That's not the point. The point is that you have to do something. You have to leave your comfort. You have to be daring enough to say, Lord, I need You. I want You. Will You meet with me? And then there's a Bible promise. When you draw near to Him, what will He do? Saints, you say it. He will draw near to you. When you draw near to Him, He will draw near to you. As we worship, if you need to draw near to Him for healing, you need to draw near to Him for salvation, you need to draw near to Him because you were never atoned for in the senses. Whatever it may be, I encourage you to act on your faith. To step out and trust Him. Today can be a dividing line. You can look back tomorrow and say, that was the day. I crossed over and I'm never going back. In the name of Jesus, I will never live less than what He's called me to live. In the name of Jesus, I will never again be without power, be without forgiveness. Today is your day. As we worship, the altars are open. Don't look around and wait. Love the Lord enough to act. In the name of Jesus, I call you, come as we worship.